This episode of Goodwill Hunters is brought to you by The Intrepid Group, the company making travel a genuine force for good. As you know, in this pod, we talk a lot about how to partner with and have a positive impact on communities all over the world. Having spent the past eight years traveling through some of the most spectacular and challenging countries, I know for sure tourism is one of the greatest forces for good when done properly. Intrepid is a certified B Corp specializing in sustainable small group travel, offering over 2,700 trips through four tour operator brands. I've done an Intrepid tour in Myanmar and I can tell you they deliver on their commitment to responsible tourism. They are committed to working with local guides, to reducing their environmental footprint and giving back to the people and places they visit. Visit intrepidgroup.travel and change the way you see the world. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show we have Reese Proudfoot. Reese is the innovation strategist at WWF Australia. In 2017, Reese founded WWF Australia's sustainable technology accelerator, Panda Labs, with a mission to develop, support and scale innovative global solutions for the sustainable development goals. Panda Labs supports social enterprise startups and corporate ventures and is currently incubating two blockchain venture partnerships. In 2017, Reese also authored the report, Can Technology Save the Planet? and developed the WWF Global Network's Global Blockchain Strategy. Reese, thank you so much for being on the show. No worries. Great to be here. Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm aware that I used an acronym very early on in the show there, which I try not to do. Um, so I think most of our listeners will be familiar with WWF, but can you uh, explain uh, who the organization is and what they do? Sure. WWF is, uh, well, it stands for Worldwide Fund for Nature. Um, it's one of the biggest environmental NGOs in the world. It's been around for about 60 years now um, and uh, in Australia for about 40. And uh, WWF is a little bit different to uh, other traditional environmental NGOs in that we uh, put a lot of emphasis on um, policy and advocacy and field-based solutions, but we also do a lot of work on how to transform markets globally. Um, we know that some of the biggest environmental impacts uh, come from uh, the way that markets operate. And so uh, WWF has spent a lot of time um, over the last 40 odd years in developing what we call our market transformation program, which is working hand in hand with business to find solutions that um, maintain uh, healthy profit, but also uh, minimize the impact of global supply chains. So as you and I said before the show, there's a lot of alignment between um, what WWF and specifically Panda Labs is doing and uh, the focus of this show. Um, so to, to deep dive a little bit further into that, there's a new question that I'm asking at the outset of a lot of our interviews. Um, so I'll ask you that. Why is what you do uh, for WWF important? Why is what I do for WWF important? Good question. Um, well, I mean, I think you know, everyone tries to remain 
relevant in their job. But I think that, you know, working for an NGO, uh, you know, there there is the macro answer to that. Like we've got we've got ten years to go, right, until we lock in two degrees of warming. And so everyone's job is important um, who works for an environmental NGO or any NGO for that matter, or anyone working in the impact sector. Um, so you know, I, I think everyone everyone has a, a really important role to play. Um, what what I uh, do at WWF is look for new ways of approaching wicked problems um, and new kinds of partnerships, new ways of working, uh, and new problem-solving methodologies uh, to try to have a crack at some of these these wicked problems which aren't getting any smaller. Um, we have, uh, as I said, uh, we're close to locking in two degrees of warming. We have rampant inequality around the world um, and we have biodiversity loss um, you know, at ever-increasing rates. And uh, we may be winning battles, but we're not winning the war. And what I try and do is look for ways of um, you know, harnessing ambitious and bold new ways of working, but most importantly, experimenting and uh, giving ourselves the flexibility of testing uh, new approaches through an experimentation framework um, and then leveraging WWF's assets and the assets of our partners to then scale successful solutions. So I guess you know, the short answer to your question is, um, I provide a, a, an opportunity for experimentation with new solutions. I love that. And I love the concept of an experimentation framework. And, and I think uh, that approach to innovation and agility and, uh, you know, all the, all the buzzwords um, has really defined this sector in recent years. And uh, I think you're exactly the person to to be able to describe that. Um, before we get into that a bit more, though, you use the phrase wicked problems. And I remember years ago at uni uh, when I did environmental subjects hearing the concept of a wicked problem. Um, so how would you define that? Like what what does that mean to you and why are they such difficult problems to solve? Uh, a wicked problem um, f- for me is, is a problem that can't be solved using traditional problem-solving methods um, or traditional programmatic solutions. So, uh, you know, often, um, you know, we, we uh, approach problem solving with a traditional method methodologies and, and wicked problems don't fit into those normal criteria. Um, and they need uh, you sometimes, you know, a, a multi, multi-pronged approach, um, you know, harnessing lots of different um, problem solving methodologies and lots of different players. Uh, often they are, you know, both spatial and temporal in nature. So they, um, you know, occur uh, in lots of different places and uh, over lots of different uh, or over long periods of time um, have no easy, easy way of solving them. I mean, climate change is a really great example of that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so before we get into your role and the, the changes that you've made at WWF, can you just tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got into the environmental space? Sure. Well, I was working back uh, for News Limited back in the day, um, over over ten years ago now, actually, and uh, was uh, working in in campaign strategy at News Limited. Um, and that job took me to. I, well, there was an opportunity to go and work in the Kingdom of Tonga um, with an Australian government program, which at the time was called Australian Youth Ambassadors for Development. Um, it's a program that sells that sends skilled young Aussies abroad um, to go and work in a in an emerging economy uh, for for a year. Um, my role was to go to Tonga and help to 
set up the local English language newspaper there, Tonga had just gone through a process of democratization, moving from an absolute monarchy um, to a constitutional monarchy. And my job was to help to go to set up the English language newspaper, which was part of this democratization process um, and make sure it had a sustainable business model and it could support itself. Um, while I was in Tonga, I was there in 2009, I uh, you know, had the opportunity of working with the business sector in Tonga a lot. Um, and I was also there um, when the global climate conference uh, was was happening in Copenhagen. It's a, one of the no, more notorious um, climate cops um, that happened because it's the one that was uh, pretty much a spectacular failure. And, um, you know, a lot of hopes and, and, and effort and energy went into this uh, this global meeting to try and come out with a solution to climate change. And, and of course, it was notorious because uh, none of the leaders could really reach a consensus on the solution. And so a lot of the energy came out of um, the, the climate change movement. Um, and for me, it was the first real glimpse uh, of just how complex the solution to this problem was and just how and how unfair this problem was to the people that were being impacted with it the most. I was, you know, living and, and, and working in Tonga and could see the effects of climate change right in front of me on a daily basis, whether that was rampant coastal erosion, um, you know, rising sea levels, which was actually, at the time I was there, turning the water table brackish. Um, so, you know, the farmers were having problems irrigating their crops. Um, you know, there were cyclones when I was in Tonga, which were extreme, and this was 10 years ago, um, of course, in the Pacific Islands, they've been, you know, they've had you know, much more extreme weather since then. Um, and I just couldn't get over how staggeringly unfair it was that these people were on the front line of climate change impacts. And meanwhile, halfway around the world, um, the people who we elect to sort out this problem were were not acting on the best interests of the people that re represented them. And so, um that was a really uh, you know, stark moment for me. But also when I was in Tonga, um, there was a, a really fantastic initiative called the Tonga Energy Roadmap uh, that was underway. And that was a, a plan that was put in place by the Tongan government to completely transform the Tongan energy sector in 10 years to make it 100% renewable. And uh, they did this by building you know, influential global partnerships with companies and and, and countries around the world um, to, to really create a uh, this this exciting roadmap and vision um, that uh, showed that you can just get on with the solution. And uh, I was really impressed with with just how quickly um, you can move to solutions by thinking of other ways to approach this problem rather than solely relying on on policymakers. Um, and uh, so, so that for me was a real, real turning point in, in how we should be addressing addressing climate change. And th th I think the other thing for me was that, you know, this is a, you know, the, the Tonga Energy Roadmap was, I mean, Tonga obviously doesn't doesn't really um, uh, produce much by way of carbon emissions, but but the Tongan economy was run on diesel, and of course, diesel prices were you know going through the roof, and the diesel had to be shipped through Fiji, and so it just made good common sense. It was just good business, um, and so when you sort of put all those factors together, it was just a really, really great forward-thinking um, plan. Um, and so um, after that, I, I, I moved back to Australia and decided I was going to get involved in in climate change solutions and uh, got a job for for WWF, um, working in the climate change team. 
and I worked in the climate change team for five years uh, at WWF um, as predominantly as a climate change campaigner and uh, before moving into the innovation role uh, with Panda Labs more recently in the last three years or so. Oh, wow. That, thank you for sharing that. And I think the Tonga Energy Roadmap, I actually hadn't heard of that before, but I think that's a really awesome example of um, some of the leadership that the SIDS, the small island developing states, um, have shown over the last 10 years uh, as, you know, exactly as you said, that they don't necessarily need to wait for a consensus from OECD governments, but can actually go ahead and start making um, some changes and in innovating their approach and I also echo your point that when you see firsthand who the you know the future climate refugees are and who the real uh, victims, for want of a better word, of climate change are, it's it's very hard to look away. Um, you know, when you see that the the farmers and um, the fishermen and sort of the people in that category that whose livelihoods are irreversibly transformed by climate change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and you know, the hard thing is now is that it's us, you know, like t 10 years ago, um, it was you know, largely climate change was largely seen through the lens of um, a, you know, a, 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 an, an environmental issue. Um, and, you know, there were some people that were being affected by it in faraway lands. Um, but, you know, climate change is here. It's right here right now. Um, and, you know, by all accounts, it's, it's, it's happening faster than we ever thought it was. So, you know, I think the imperative is on us to do something about it. But, you know, I, I firmly believe that we have, you know, the right brains, the right technology, you know, and we have the, the right, the right um, methodologies to solve the problem. We've just got to, got to get cracking. Yeah. Now, that's an awesome segue into technology um, and the incredible work you have done at WWF. So can you take us back to sort of the moment you realised that there was a lot of scope for innovating the status quo um, at WWF? What sparked um, this movement at WWF for you? It, it really came about because about three years ago when when we, we launched Panda Labs, um, it really was it came out for a number of a number of reasons, but but we had a good look at um, you know the role of NGOs in creating impact and uh, what was happening around the world um, with some of the major megatrends and the way that the economy was was moving and and the shift of global power uh, and the way that markets were operating and saw a new role for NGOs in helping to accelerate some of these exciting new business models. And so really the question that we put to ourselves was what kind of framework do we need to build in order to make that happen? And um, you know, there was definitely this, this, this pull factor, but there was also a push factor as well, right? Which is NGOs are being disrupted from all angles um, and all sides. And you know, all, all sectors are facing disruption and you know, NGOs are too. Um, you know, you have... Uh, the, the private sector is increasingly um, you know, in, uh, bringing these capabilities, environment managers, sustainability managers, impact managers are now being brought in-house, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, it's moving out of CSR and more into kind of the CFO territory now, like a lot of this um, environmental impact, social impact is being seen as a risk issue, uh, which is great. But that also means that that, that role that NGOs are traditionally playing is, is, is having to change. You've also got, um, you know, small, fast-moving startups that are able to uh, develop solutions faster than NGOs. They're able to take more risks. Um, 
you know, and um, think think creatively about problem solving. And um, you know, a lot of these these startups are moving into the same space as NGOs as well, and the, the problems that they're trying to solve. Um, I think a really great example that that I uh, am heartened by is if you look at at um, Y Combinator, the accelerator in Silicon Valley. I mean, Y Combinator is a huge organization. You're talking about you know, the cumulative valuation of Y Combinator startups is around $100 billion. Um, and, you know, it's disrupted, uh, the, or the, the, the kind of disruptive companies that it's produced are around, you know, 80, 90, 100 of these companies that includes Dropbox and, uh, you know, um, Airbnb and Stripe. And, and so some, some of the biggest, biggest companies. And Y Combinator, it was heartening a few years ago that they came out and said, well, actually, you know, we have a bigger role to play now. Um, we want to start to develop companies that have real social impact and social purpose. And I think they have set a whole bunch of criteria now up for the kind of businesses they're looking for, ranging from, um, you know, fixing democratic problems and fi- fixing the media and, uh, you know, cl- climate, energy and inequality and all, all types of things. And so when you've got these organisations that are moving into this space and saying we have a role to play in solving some of these problems and we've got the right kind of methodologies to do that and we've got access to capital, then, you know, that, that throws a question that, you know, what is the role for NGOs in this in this new world? And, you know, there is still a, a very important role for, for, for NGOs globally. I mean, NGOs, um, you know, are the custodians of a huge amount of IP, in how to solve complex systemic problems. But I think that what it means is that NGOs have to evolve their thinking um, about the role that they play in the problem-solving ecosystem. And so what I mean by that is that um, rather than necessarily do the doing, maybe the role for NGOs should be in helping to articulate the problem, uh, let others do the doing, and then come back and, and verify the impact at the end. And in that way, you're unlocking a huge amount more value um, for, I mean, well, a huge amount of more capacity that the NGOs don't have to use on um, doing the problem solving themselves. And, and, of course, tapping into the value that companies and other organizations around the world bring in, in terms of problem solving. Yeah, you've explained that so well. In all of the arguments that I've heard on this show and outside of this show about the role of NGOs uh, moving forward. I've never heard anyone say that NGOs are the custodians of enormous amounts of IP. Um, That's new. And I think that that's such a fascinating thought. Um, To to build on that more and to build on what you just said, what, I mean, what does that mean for NGOs as as they transform? Like how do they ensure that they're leveraging that IP to grow or to sustain their operations? Well, I'll give you an example. Um, so one of the first ventures that we, well, in fact, the first venture that we uh, that came through the Panda Labs process is a company um, that's now spun off uh, out of WWF called uh, OpenSC, um, standing for Open Supply Chain. And OpenSC really um, was a product of that initial research and analysis that we did looking at you know, global megatrends, global economic uh, trends, uh, global technology trends, and uh, the biggest social and environmental issues that needed to be solved. And when you, we sort of brought all those things together, we said, well, hang on, there's a really interesting space with that's emerging with the excitement that's building around blockchain, um, specifically around the potential to uh, 
track data along a supply chain, uh, make supply chains more transparent and more, more, more traceable. Um, and the work that we do at WWF in um, transforming supply chains. Uh, and so, uh, you know, really what, what that was, uh, what led to OpenSC was um, having a look at WWF's intellectual property over the last 40 years in, in, in how to transform global supply chains to reduce impacts, um, environmental and social impacts, and then combine that with a partner um, in this case, it was BCG Digital Ventures, who have expertise in um, emerging technologies and data science and how to build a venture, um, you know, and bringing those two sets of skills and, and IP together to build something with more value. Uh, and so, um, you know, OpenSC now is a company that uh, does four things. It, it uh, enables um, global corporations to um to store or capture data at source on how a product is is sourced or how a product is made. Um, so, for example, it could be a tuna coming out of the ocean, where it was caught, how it was caught, who caught it. Um, it enables the data to be stored in a in a trustworthy way, and that's where the blockchain comes in. Uh, it enables the uh, sustainability criteria to be verified. Um, you know, a, a, again, using a complex complex algorithms and, and other other ways. And then, lastly, exposing that data to the people that want to see it. So that could be consumers, uh, or it could be uh, major retailers who have committed to buying sustainably sourced food. So that was a scenario where it was a, a definitely a win for WWF in in our world where. You know, our, our primary aim is to make supply chains more sustainable in order to reduce impacts on on biodiversity and and lessen the effects of climate change. Um, but also that we needed to make sure that, you know, we have a team of 100 people at WWF Australia, um, and it, you know, but the potential for this this technology is vast. And so if we can build a, a real business model around this company, it can run itself, and of course, it can grow and scale. And, and really, that's the last piece of the puzzle in terms of the the value that I think global NGOs bring is is their their networks. Um, at WWF Australia, we well, so at WWF we operate in in around eighty countries around the world. We have uh, two and a half thousand corporate partners. Um, we have um, access to key decision makers, often you know policymakers, governments, um, you know. And so, how can we leverage these connections and networks? To increase the likelihood of success of these ventures and these and these companies, and so really that's what what we've been aiming to do. Um, and um, I guess you know the, the 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 terminology is is provide OpenSC with an unfair advantage um, that it's definitely going to succeed because we need it to succeed. That's an awesome example. I think what what comes to mind when you're talking about that is how a lot of um, NGOs traditionally uh, funding has been viewed as something that was scarce and so money has been spent very conservatively and of course I'm generalizing here but I think what that's meant is you know in past decades NGOs haven't viewed themselves as organizations which could invest in other organizations um, or which could invest in sort of innovative startups or um, innovative solutions to wicked problems in the way that WWF is. Um, so how important is that to WWF's uh, mandate and, and operating, operating model? How important is it that you are able to invest in other organisations? Uh, well, I mean, I, I should I should clarify that part of – we, we um, take an approach to these – uh, kind of ventures 
through um, building or leveraging the capital capital stack, right? So we work with philanthropists and, um, you know, there are other ways that WWF, um, other donors to WWF to uh, put in place a robust methodology for experimentation. And so we use philanthropy as, as risk capital to help us experiment and um, show that there is real value in these um, transformative solutions. And then we work with impact investors to scale and commercialize. So, you know, we, being an NGO, don't have a huge fund um, to invest in these startups, but um, we do have other assets available to us that um that we can co contribute to these kind of ventures and increase the likelihood of success, therefore making it a uh, better and safer investment for um, an impact investor. So, I mean, but I think the whole, you know, NGOs needing to shift the paradigm around investing in innovation is, 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 is clear, right? I mean, there's, I think that the statistic for the sustainable development goals, meeting the sustainable development goals is around $3 trillion uh, a year um, to, to meet the sustainable development goals. Um, but in global aid funding, the total for global aid funding is $140 billion a year. <laughs> so there is an enormous yeah, gap wow. there. Mm. But, but, but at the same time, right, BlackRock Investments, they have, what, $6 trillion um, under management and, you know, I think it was last year that Larry Fink, the, the CEO, came out and said that they're expecting the companies that they do business with to show clear impacts. And, you know, these are really, this is, it's, it's all heading in the right direction. These are clear, positive statements. But I mean, and I don't think we're going to shift the entire BlackRock portfolio overnight. But I guess my point is that, you know, if it's going to cost $3 trillion a year to meet the sustainable development goals, and there's $140 billion a year in aid funding, but there's $6 trillion a year in assets under management with some of these companies that are now shifting towards, towards impact, then that has to be where we look. There is plenty of capital out there. Um, we just need the high-scale, high, highly impactful, scalable projects um, to make it easy for these investors to invest in. Invest in. Yeah, spot on. Yeah, $3 trillion feels like a lot of money until you situate it next to, you know, the total amount of private wealth that exists in the world. And then and then it seems like a really minuscule amount of money. Um, and yeah. I agree with you that, you know, the signals are all pretty spot on at the moment that um, very large portions of the private sector are heading in the right direction around impact. And I think one of my favourite indicators of that is um, – a report that came out uh, in Australia in 2018, which indicated that upwards of 70% of investors would consider environmental and social impact in their investment decisions. And that was up from less than 10% a year earlier. So we've really seen an enormous shift in that direction um, here in Australia, at least. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting to see. And I think the onus is on those who are developing projects now to meet the demand. Um, you know, we're working on a platform called Impactio. Um, here is the, another venture coming through Panda Labs. And Impactio is essentially a, a project, an impact project curation platform that helps to put uh, impactful projects in front of uh, people and organizations and funders that can bring them to life, whether that's philanthropists or you know, investors uh, or governments. And the reason why we're working on that is because we know the gap isn't in in capital. The gap is in impactful projects, and we we the onus is on us and other NGOs and other um, uh, social entrepreneurs 
to be ambitious in building these kind of scalable ventures that um, will have real impacts that can be com- that, that can be commercialized and that can be scaled globally, um, and to prove that they're going to have the impact that impact investors are looking for, um, and then put them on the table. Um, now, I said, uh, Reese, before we started that one of my first engagements with WWF was last year, I think it was October or November 2018, when I attended a breakfast event at NAB um, about your recent blockchain initiatives. And um, admitted, admittedly, it was the same week that I was doing an interview on this show with Dr. Gemma Green uh, about the her blockchain technology um, for renewable energy. So it was sort of a big blockchain week for me, but I'm still uh, grappling with it and still trying to get my head around it. So can you explain um, the example of blockchain for WWF and how you've used that to innovate your approaches? Sure. I I mean, I think that blockchain is now in a really interesting place in the, the hype cycle in that, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a huge amount of hype and we all know, um, you know, there was, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of money flowing through, um, through the ICOs and um, a lot of new companies being born almost overnight. Um, we're actually in a really interesting position now where, you know, the hype has come out uh, of the market to a degree and um, that we now are seeing companies uh, and solutions with real sort of credibility are, are the ones that are now that have the staying power. And um, so, I mean, we've, we've been deliberately slow with our approach to, to, to looking at blockchain because, we, you know, we were really, we were in no hurry um, to, to, to launch an ICO or anything like that. So um, fr- from the outset, we, you know, did a lot of research into what, how blockchain could be transformative in our world. And so that was primarily looking at um, energy trading, absolutely. Like the work that Gemma Green and Power Ledger are doing is is just phenomenal, and we're very excited about that and the potential for that to scale. Um, but also uh, in supply chain traceability and transparency, and that's the area that we've been focusing on with OpenSC um, and working on um, making supply chains more um, trustworthy, uh, and also being able to prove the. The, uh, the origin and the provenance of, of products and that there wasn't any kind of uh, worker exploitation or, um, or environmental impact involved in how products were produced. Um, and But also in tracking uh, payments and making payments more, imp- uh, more trustworthy and payments based on impact. And what that means is that um, a donor in some country can say that they want to be sure that their, um, and you know, this could be a government donor, uh, they want to be sure that their money is being used for, um, you know, for, for actual on the ground impact. And we're excited about some of the prototypes that are being built in that space now as well, about how to track funds um, through a system and, and, and prove impact. Obviously, impact is subjective. And, you know, a lot of the time impact takes, takes a long time to prove. And so, there are no quick fixes for this in terms of being able to prove impact instantaneously. But, you know, there are really interesting things happening in that space as well in terms of making payments more trustworthy and secure. Um, so, you know, we, we had a good look at look at those spaces and decided to focus in on, on supply chain traceability and transparency and, and also um, on uh, another um, platform, the, the one I mentioned earlier, um, Impactio, which is using the behavioral economic part of blockchain and, and blockchain 
um, and tokens, crypto tokens, and um, using uh, having a good look at, at how the behavioral economic motivators can be used to decrease bias in the way that impactful projects are selected and put in front of funders. Um, and so that's uh, that's the area that we've been experimenting with over the last year and a half or so. We've been working with a, a blockchain venture production studio called Consensus um, and uh, and have chosen to focus our efforts on, on those two areas. The, re- the reason for which is that we, you know, we think that they're the two areas that have the biggest potential to create downstream impact. So if we can, if we can solve the problem about how to make, um, make sure that pro- impact projects are put in front of funders are, you know, really have the impact that they, um, they claim to have, then, then that can potentially unlock huge amounts of, of additional funds and investment for, uh, for impact projects down the track for WWF, but also for all, all other um, NGOs and, and impact organizations as well. Yeah, gosh, that's so exciting. And what comes to mind when you're talking about um, the way blockchain could be used to trace funds is things like natural disasters, you know, in the wake of a natural disaster, um, one of the biggest concerns that I think the humanitarian sector has is the way just, you know, usually enormous amounts of funds are poured into the disaster in a very small space of time and tracing exactly how those funds is spent can be really difficult. And because there are so many players in the space, there is a really high risk that those funds won't be spent in the way they were intended to. And I suppose that can de-incentivize um, providing funding, um, particularly if you're a private sector actor in that space. So I think that the ability to trace funds will be quite revolutionary for the um, well for the entire humanitarian and charitable sector. It will, um, but it, like all, all emerging technology needs to be treated with a you know a grain of salt, I guess. In that it's not a magic bullet. I mean, technology itself isn't the solution humans humans are the solution and and we need to make sure that we are um you know still bringing about the change at the human level not relying on technology and and if you i mean blockchain is another great example of that right that that there are there were so many of these these um prototype solutions that got pumped out over the last you know couple of years and very very quickly and you know in the impact space as well the humanitarian space but a lot but a lot of these weren't actually developed with the people in mind who were it was supposedly going to benefit and so you know they sort of f- fell at the first hurdle of, of human-centered design in that they didn't they didn't involve the participation of of, of the people who were um, going to benefit and as a result a lot of these um you know these solutions uh weren't able to live up to the hype and also they're not necessarily always that beneficial if you look at um Blockchain as a way of storing ident- identity, um, you know, is, a, is an example which is often used by people as a, as a you know, a really potentially transformative so, um, you know, use case for blockchain. But if you're storing someone's identity on the blockchain forever um, and it is uh, you know immutable, um, you know, that comes with its own set of problems. That you know, if pe- people have a right to control their identity, and if they're in a war zone and um, you know, if uh, you know, and, and um, or, or any other kind of humanitarian situation, um, you know, and there that data falls into to the wrong hands, then you know that person's at risk. And so, I don't think we can be too um, uh, eager to rush in to rolling out these blockchain-based solutions, where you're essentially looking at a scenario where you know this data will be stored forever. 
Um, so we just need to be mindful of that when we're developing these solutions and, and ultimately making sure that we're building them with the people who we are seeking out to to help. Yeah, I think that's really wise. Um, that's really well put. And I think you've just sort of answered your own question there um, of the report that you authored in 2017, which I wanted to ask you to <laughs> just to summarise in a few minutes. Um, I know how hard that is. But um, can technology save the planet? And I suppose I'd jump in there and say what I got from your last answer is that ultimately it's people um, that this comes down to and and not technology. Um but yeah, if you could summarise the findings of that report and, and tell us, can technology save the planet? Oh, for sure. We're, we're living in a really, really interesting and exciting period where there, the, the, the rapid growth of some of these disruptive technologies is just, just you know, startling in how quickly it's moving. And um, I think that technical solutions will absolutely play a role in in how, how we solve some of these big global wicked problems. Um, however, we can't, it, it, it's very dangerous to sit back and say, it's okay, technology is going to solve this. Um, that just won't happen. For, 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 I mean, and it's dangerous for a couple of reasons. Firstly, um, we if you look at AI as an example, it's really important that we have the right kind of brains and the right organisations involved in this brave new world that AI is bringing about, that we have ethicists in, involved, we have NGOs right at the, at the, you know, having a seat at the table in deciding how this um, extremely powerful technology should be rolled out uh, and making sure that we have the right kind of rules and frameworks in place now to make sure that it's not used for the wrong things, um, and um, you know that, that's that's su super important. And I know there's a lot of really good thinking being done now about how we make sure that that happens. But you know, ultimately, you know, some of the companies that are um, you know, driving the uptake of, of these of this technology and and um, are responsible for developing some of the most powerful aspects of these new technologies and um, AI and machine learning. Um, may not be so keen to share, you know, and so, you know, we, we need to make sure that we've got the right kind of organisations involved in the decision-making process right now um, so we can make sure these technologies are being used for good. Secondly, I think there is a risk in um, standing back and saying technology is going to solve everything. We're, we're in this situation because of technology. Um, you know, the Industrial Revolution was you know, a revolution in technology and you know, that, that resulted in massive, massive increases in human development and, uh, you know, and health and education and, uh, and everything else that came with that. However, it also resulted in, um, in the carbonisation of our economy, and which is, has brought about climate change. And we can't just say the technology is going to fix everything. We need to make sure that we are holding our decision leaders, uh, decision makers accountable um, to steer the technology and the technological solutions in the right direction um, because we have so little time. Uh, and so it's going to make, it's going to take human leadership uh, over um, a uh, just relying on technology as the solution. Yeah, fantastic. I, I completely agree with you. Now, to close, could we close with some parting advice um, based on the lessons that you've learned 
with WWF about innovation and investing in technology and investing in ventures and also in leveraging private wealth and philanthropic capital. Um, what's sort of the biggest takeaway that you would share with not-for-profits that um, you know might might be looking to follow a similar growth trajectory to that of WWF? I think the first the first and most important piece of advice is uh, embrace experimentation and you know provide give yourself the freedom and the flexibility to experiment and that doesn't necessarily say mean taking lots of of brand risks because obviously the the brand of a not for profit is is ultimately one of its most powerful assets um, but you know build the right kind of frameworks um, that allow you to experiment quickly and really open up the assets that you have available for experimentation. And that could be experimentation by you and your people, or it could be um, opening up the assets that you have for experimentation in partnership with entrepreneurs and with people from the innovation sector and the tech sector and finance and business and other areas, academia. Um, you know, so so be, be open to experimentation. Second of all, um, you know, start with scale in mind as well. So, you know, while you start saying, well, what is the quickest, fastest, easiest way we can prove or disprove that this hypothesis is or this this solution is going to work? You know, you build the you build the proof of concept, you build the prototype, but be thinking about how this will scale. It's I again, we are in a situation now where we need scalable solutions. Um, and so, you know, the, we went through a, a process at WWF Australia where you know, we thought, you know, do we have a role to play in just incubating startups that come through um, incubators? And and we said, no, actually, we don't. Um, firstly, because there's a lot of incubators out there and we don't need to build another one. Um, but secondly, you know, we felt that the scale of the solutions that are needed warranted us to be thinking at, at, at the corporate end of the of the of the ladder. Um, and really thinking about these solutions that could scale globally from the outset. And so that really, that's the, that was the second piece um, that was really important. The, the, the other thing I'd say is that, um, you know, how can we in the not-for-profit sector be working more closely and collaboratively with the philanthropic sector and the impact investing sector so that we are truly uh, leveraging blended finance options um, and, you know, working with philanthropists to help NGOs and, and not-for-profits in this experimentation. And a lot of the times, experimentation does not take much money, um, but it does take it does take funds in order to experiment. And so, you know, how can we build the confidence um, that the philanthropic sector needs in order to invest in experimentation through, through NGOs uh, and so we can put a really strong case forward to impact investors um, with some kind of validated prototype um, with a validated business model that then um, builds confidence for further investment and scaling down the track. So, you know, I think it's ultimately super important that we are working so closely, um, not-for-profit sector, philanthropists and investors, um, in helping to experiment and then scale some of these solutions together. I really love that advice, uh, all of it. It's just awesome and I'm so grateful that you could share that. I think what I, um, what I particularly find um, important, uh, it's all important, but what I find particularly important out of that is the ability for not-for-profits to look at an opportunity and go, is this actually the right space for us? 
I think the ability to say no and to recognize what's probably not most aligned with um, with your brand and the sort of growth that you're looking to have, it's just as important as knowing when to say yes. Um, and I, I would reflect that WWF seems to have said yes and jumped into the right opportunities that were really aligned with, um, with the impact that you're looking to have. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, experimentation was part of that. You know, we had to, we had to dip our toe in the water before we decided not to do it. But importantly, we didn't build the, the big program first, um, and then wait for it to not work. Um, we we said, what is the cheapest and the easiest way we could experiment with this approach to prove or disprove whether it's going to work for us? Um, and that is the power of experimentation. Yeah, I love that. Uh, this has been fantastic. Reese. thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I really have just been in awe of your work for such a long time and your insights have been really fantastic. So um, thank you for being so generous and for sharing them with us. And it's been wonderful to chat to you. No worries, Rachel. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. 